This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly, Ben Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoops, Castro, Ed's a Lizza No Go, You Two, Sigmund Ree, Paola, and Kennedy. Oh, I knew we were getting to this one. Oh, uh, finally. Hello again, and welcome to episode 78 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. Oh, Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Kennedy. Well, and so he should, Katie. I mean, in the course of this podcast, sometimes we alight upon the arcane. We come to topics of which we know absolutely nothing and sometimes don't even recognize the words, not today. Not today. I think I've come across this figure a little bit here and there growing up in America and around the world. Yes, always uh, glamour shots, kind of pinup shots of this young president who captured the nation's imagination. And he also seemed like kind of movie star good looking. Uh, how about you? You had a little bit of a Irish heritage mm. upbringing, so JFK's Irish background maybe had some application to you and your family? Yeah, I think there is a huge amount of pride even today in both Ireland and the Irish diaspora across the world yeah. about what happened to that favoured son of an Irish Catholic Boston family. But Katie, enough of this idle chit-chat between you and I. I'm delighted to say that for such a big topic, we have a big name guest. We are joined today by Frederick Logival, who joins us from Harvard University, where he works as a history professor and the Lawrence D. Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. He is also a Pulitzer Prize winning author. His books include, most recently, JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century, 1917 to 1956. Fred, it's lovely to have you with us. I'm so glad to be with you guys today. Thank goodness you're here because we have a lot of questions. First of all, let's just set the scene here. Uh, I want to talk about how different a political figure JFK was in the context of the climate that he came up in. He was young, modern, dashing, glamorous. It was really a paradigm shift for politics in the way that maybe Brando and James Dean and all those guys forever changed Hollywood acting. What was going on in the 1950s and 60s? Was there a new kind of hopefulness in the air? Yeah, I, I think maybe to some degree there was. And it's not coincidental, I think, that after Kennedy, so after the terrible events in Dallas in November 1963, Democratic Party politicians in particular consciously modeled themselves after JFK. So he, it certainly was a kind of paradigm shift when after, after Kennedy. I think to some degree we still see this. We certainly saw it with Barack Obama. I think what it was for Kennedy, and we can get into this uh, more fully, but I think it's a combination of what I think you refer to as the glamour that he brought with his beautiful family, 
with his ability to inspire people. Uh, that's certainly there also. And also, I think, a kind of optimism, uh, which I think a lot about in our own day, needless to say, but an optimism about the future, about America and its place in the world, about what democracy can bring. He, he preaches the idea, really from his earliest days as a politician, that democracy is hard work, but that the payoff is great. You put all of that together into a handsome, dashing figure, as you put it, and I think you've got something really powerful. There are so many stories and so many myths, Fred, about JFK. And I find it fascinating when I look at his family background, when I look at the wealth and the influence that was there. Yeah. It's a really febrile place for a politician to grow. But equally, so much about the young JFK makes you think that it was always going to be someone else, another member of the family. No, it's really true. I mean, the golden child in the family is the firstborn. Jack is the secondborn. But the firstborn is Joe Jr. And he's, he's movie star handsome, more handsome, I think most people would say, than, than Jack in, in a sort of classic uh, way. He is intensely ambitious. His parents believe he's the one who's destined for greatness. And in a funny way, and I talk about this in the book, I think this ultimately comes to benefit Jack. He can be a little bit in his, father, in his brother's shadow. He can cultivate some of his own interests that he has um, and not feel the kind of pressure that I think Joe Jr. feels. But you're absolutely correct. He is the one. Joe Jr. is the one that people think, you know, he's the one who's going to go far. And when, when Joe Sr., we should talk about the father as well, but when his own political career basically crashes and burns, he pins all of his hopes initially on, yeah, on the eldest, on Joe Jr., not Jack. I'm interested in the social dissonance between the Kennedys' moneyed privilege and the fact of their Catholicness, because at that time, and to a certain extent this continues, there is bigotry against Catholics, uh, certainly in U.S. politics. Um, in fact, Joe Biden is only the second Catholic U.S. president after JFK. So it's interesting to me that uh, on the one hand, there is this extreme privilege and this sense that they're part of the, the institution, the fabric of the American aristocracy. But on the other hand, maybe they're seen as kind of a, a religious peasant. Oh, it's really true. And it's, I think, such an interesting and important part of the story. And you see it, you know, where I'm sitting today in Cambridge, just down the street from Harvard. When the three Kennedy men, starting with Joe Sr., around the turn of the last century, when he is at Harvard, he experiences this prejudice, you know, continually. And it's a source of endless frustration for him. I don't think he ever quite gets over the snubbing that he got from various Harvard men when he was here as an undergraduate. Joe Jr. then follows, and then Jack follows. And of course, the other brothers also come to Harvard later. But I think even when Jack is here, so from 36 to 40 as an undergraduate at Harvard, he is acutely aware of the fact that he's a man of privilege, because by then the family is one of the richest families in America. And yet he, as you point out, as an Irish Catholic, is not eligible, if you will, for entrance, for admission into the most exclusive final clubs at Harvard. These are elite clubs. 
in which only certain men, and they were all men in those days, would gain admission. He, as an Irish Catholic, cannot. These are waspy clubs. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's worse, no question, for Joe Sr. In other words, this, this prejudice against Irish Catholics in all aspects of Boston society and in, in American society is worse for him than for his sons. But it lingers. And it's there, I think, for all of them. And they feel a certain chip on their shoulder about this. I think it affects how JFK develops as a politician. I think it helps to undermine Joe Sr.'s political ambitions earlier. And then, as I said before, he pins his hopes on on what his sons can accomplish. But it's a very important part of the story, no question. The other obvious impediment, Fred, when you look at his childhood and certainly his teenage years, and as he starts to develop into the man he will become, is the illnesses. Yeah, he... You know, he's really sickly from basically day one. Um, And, you know, to see him in his prime when he's in the White House, you see a guy who moves with a certain athletic kind of grace, and he's tall and he's handsome, he's got broad shoulders. You would never think of him as somebody who has struggled with health issues really every day of his life. But it's true. He did. Um, And it begins early. It's made worse by his wartime experience, I think. He develops Addison's disease, which is actually diagnosed by a British doctor in 1947. But you add all of this up, and this is a man who experiences pain a great deal. I think it has various effects, which we could discuss. One of them is I think he develops a certain empathy, a little bit in the way that FDR with his polio develops a kind of empathy that he did not have before for other human beings. I think Jack Kennedy gets a little bit of that. But you're absolutely right. It conditions so much of what happens for Kennedy. Ironically, it doesn't keep him from being one of the hardest workers in American political history, which, by the way, I think is a key to his political success. So I don't want to exaggerate the importance of the health um, problems, but they're there, no question. When I've read about JFK, Fred, I've been fascinated by what happens to him during the Second World War not only for what it does to him as a man, but also because it becomes one of the founding myths that he will build his political career around. Yeah. The war is immensely important for him, as it is, I think, for many of the men who served, most of the men who served. In the summer of 1943, his torpedo boat, he is the commander, he's the skipper of this boat, uh, is rammed by a Japanese destroyer. Uh, It begins to sink. They're in hostile waters. Kennedy has to figure out what to do. And over the course of several days, he leads his crew to safety, basically. And all of them, by the way, the crew members, both at the time, before he's famous, and later after he becomes president, all of them laud John F. Kennedy's uh, actions in his sort of self-possessed, his calm, cool way, figuring out what it is that we're going to do to escape this thing. And he does. Uh, It's a kind of cinematic, uh, needless to say, episode uh, where they ultimately, in the end, survive, except for two crew members who are killed basically instantly on on the ramming. And there there is one, Fred, is is this right? There is a, a badly injured colleague of Kennedy's who has been burnt and Kennedy swims significant distances and towing his, his injured compatriot to safety by holding, what is it, an element of his life jacket between his teeth? Between his teeth. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so McMahon is the crew member, badly injured, 
And Kennedy, for a period of hours, think about this, swims three or four hours, again, in Japanese-held waters and shark-infested waters. Wow. With the bit between his teeth, if I can put it that way. And uh, he manages to, to get McMahon to this um, small island where they're going to hide out. It's an astonishing feat. Of course, he was a competitive swim, swimmer at Harvard, so he was excellent in the water. That helped. But but what a what a story that is. The other thing I think that's worth noting about the wartime experience for Kennedy is I think he comes out of the war confident in his own leadership. So for that reason, it's important uh, for him personally. He also comes out of it with a with a pair of kind of contradictory um, views, which I think will shape him till the end of his days. One is I think he is skeptical of the military instrument. It's a very blunt instrument. I think Jack Kennedy concludes it's not going to solve problems that are at root political. So he's, I think, a skeptic about the utility of military force. But secondly, and somewhat paradoxically, he believes that the United States must assume a leadership position in the world. After World War I, according to Jack Kennedy's analysis, America had withdrawn, had sort of stepped away from the international stage. That cannot happen anymore. And I think, again, even as president, he believes U.S. leadership is critical. That you can trace back to his World War II experience. Let's talk about his path to becoming a statesman and the path to the presidency. It sounds like it, World War II was the crucible for that. I think it was. I think he came, I think he came back in 1944. Not sure what he was going to do, but very interested in politics. And what's key about this is that his brother, Joe Jr., is still alive when Jack Kennedy begins to seriously think about politics. A classic counterfactual question here is, what would he have done had Joe Jr. survived? Joe Jr. is killed in the summer of 44 in a kind of near suicide mission uh, in the war. I argue in the book and this I think goes against what most historians and biographers have suggested, that John Kennedy, for his own reasons, wanted to go into politics. He was actually better positioned in some ways to do so than his brother. Nevertheless, we have to, we have to acknowledge, we have to say that the fact that Joe Jr. is killed and Joe Sr. now basically says to Jack, okay, now it's your turn. You're going to do this. You're going to pick up the mantle. Obviously, that matters, and that gets him on his way, there's an election here in Massachusetts in the 11th district in 1946 that Jack Kennedy, who doesn't really know what he's doing, by the way, but he enters that race, this skinny 29-year-old, manages to win, and then, he's on, his, then he's, on, he's on his way. How important is his father's money, Fred? There's a, there's a quote I've read talking about JFK uh, when he gets into the House of Representatives. His father saying, with the money I spent, I could have elected my chauffeur. Yeah, it's a really good quote. Um, and there's truth to it, too, which is maybe why it's a good quote. There's no question that Joe Kennedy's riches, and again, he's one of the wealthiest men in America, matters a lot in terms of his son's political rise. And then later, Bobby and Ted, uh, you know, when they have their political careers, the Kennedy money matters. I don't think it matters quite as much as people have suggested, however. This is not a case of buying elections. Uh, one of the secrets of John F. Kennedy's political success, both when he's running for the House and he's running for the Senate and he's running for the presidency, uh, 
is that he relies to a huge extent, an amazing extent, on volunteer labor. People flock to these campaign offices saying, what can I do? This is the sort of effect he has on people, which we could discuss. And so, yes, Joe Kennedy's money opens up lots of doors. They're allowed to advertise. They can commission polling. They were among the first politicians to use polling. That costs money. They get an airplane, a private airplane in 1959 that he's going to use in the 1960 election. Very important. But I wouldn't want to overstate the degree to which Joe Kennedy's riches made this happen. It's substantially because of Jack Kennedy's skills and his hard work uh, in campaigning that gets him political success. Yeah, and his charisma as well. And I want to discuss Jackie because his relationship with her uh, is key, I think. That's a key element to his success and also the storied quality of his appeal. What made it work and what made it not work? And how did they even meet? Jack and Jackie were introduced by um, uh, mutual friends. Uh, they first met in a serious way in, in 1951, but, but really began dating in 52 during his Senate campaign. And, you know, they had a lot in common, we should note. Uh, they were deeply interested in books. They had a kind of absurdist sense of humor that they shared. Uh, they loved to gossip. Uh, and so they would spend a lot of time talking about people after a dinner party, you know, what about so-and-so, and did you get a look at so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, they loved to do that kind of thing. They admired another, one another's intelligence. Um, Jackie was extremely intelligent, and she had a facility with foreign languages that he himself did not have. He had a tin ear for languages, but it, he admired her all the more for the fact that she could do this. And she was actually important in various ways in his political rise, in advising him how to be a better speaker, in helping him to translate materials from French in particular, but also to some extent from Spanish and other languages. So she's key to his political rise. She also proves to be, I think, quite effective on the campaign trail. But, as you point out, there are also problems. Most notably, he is a serial philanderer. He cheats on her before the wedding. He cheats on her after the wedding. He's very much cut from his father's cloth in this respect. And she said to friends, to girlfriends, all men cheat. You know, this is just what they do. But I think once she realized that he was doing it in the way he was doing it, I think it was much more difficult for her than she had thought that it would be. And so there is that part of the story as well. And what's behind his philandering? Do you think it's just kind of a, a runoff of this overabundance of charisma and uh, he's got to let off some steam somehow? Yeah, I think about this a lot. And of course, as I write volume two of my biography, which I'm writing now, and as he rises closer to the presidency and then into the presidency, I'm going to have to grapple with this because there's a reckless quality to this. I think it's in part his father's example. He had come of age as a, as a kid, as the, one of the older kids he could see, he and the other older kids in the family. There were nine kids total. But the three or four or five who are the oldest could see exactly what the dad is doing. Um, and he was not very discreet uh, in, in many instances about his own philandering. And so Jack could see that. And in fact, the father sometimes dared his sons. Joe Jr. and Jack, basically saying, can you keep up with me? Can you, can you do what I'm doing in this area? That's bound to have an effect on somebody. So it's partly that. It's partly the age, you know, the madmen sort of thing. 
though I think it's also important to stress. And again, in volume two, I need to stress this. Not all men cheated. Lots of men were faithful. And so to excuse this behavior by simply saying, well, it's the dad, it's the era, I don't think that quite works. But there's no question that those two elements factor in. This is sometimes, Fred, the juiciest stuff with JFK, isn't it? This is the stuff that people are titillated by, but understandably so, because some of the names of the women that JFK is reportedly involved in are big, big names. Yeah, I mean, the, the, most, the most notable, I suppose, is Marilyn Monroe. Very difficult to figure out exactly uh, what transpired. Uh, one of the things I'd like to do, again, in writing volume two, is to get closer to that. But uh, any number of Hollywood uh, actresses and, you know, Angie Dickinson and, and various others uh, that we do have better evidence about. And as I indicated before, it was, you know, it was an age in which reporters didn't disclose what they knew. Yeah, there's no TMZ back then. No TMZ, no 24-7 news. Uh, no reporters, you know, and, and cameras following a, a, a candidate everywhere. And his political opponents wouldn't try and use it then. Yeah, no, I think that that danger is there. And that's why there's on some level for me, at least currently, a mystery here, because it is reckless. He is opening himself up to problems, including potential blackmail, it seems to me. He counted on the fact successfully that reporters, even if they could see what was going on, even if they had a pretty good handle on this, weren't going to report it. Would it have worked for him in a second term? Hard to say. Maybe. Would it work for him today? Absolutely not. Let's also talk about the salacious rumors about mob connections, because a lot of people like to whisper about that and, and how they were instrumental in getting him into the White House. Yeah, you know, on the mob business... I'm skeptical that they had any role, any meaningful role to play in getting him elected in 1960 to the presidency. Certainly no role to play in any of his earlier election victories, the House, the Senate in 52, and then the Senate re-election in 58, which was a massive re-election victory, by the way, helped set him on his way. But even with respect to 1960, I have seen no good evidence that any such connections that Joe Sr., it would have been through Joe Sr., any such connections that Joe Sr. had would have been decisive in that narrow election victory against Nixon in the fall of 1960. So count me as one of the, one of the people with misgivings about that notion. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.
Kennedy's youth and oomph were a big selling point for a lot of people, but perhaps also considered a drawback. I mean, he only narrowly beat Nixon for president. Yeah, I mean, the arguments in, and I'm just writing about this now in volume two, or I've just finished writing about this, completely fascinating. I could write a book on this, <laughs> but of course, it's only a portion of the book. But but what's interesting is that in 50 Seven, fifty-eight, fifty-nine. In other words, in the lead up to 1960, people are telling Jack Kennedy, you're too young, you're too inexperienced. They didn't say, but they also wanted to, to say, you're too Catholic. Uh, the time has not come to elect the Catholic president of the United States. So he's being told this time and time again by people whose opinion he respects. But of course, he charges ahead, we know. He said, no, I can do this. I think I can win if I work harder. Uh, than the others, I will get the nomination, and he succeeds in doing so. But you're absolutely right. The idea was out there that this guy who's 42 and then 43, by the time he wins, he's just too young for this. But he he proves them wrong. He has such a way with words, Fred. When you look at American presidents of the last 100 years, he seems to be the one perhaps... I guess, with the addition of Barack Obama, who has an ability to not only have his finger on the pulse of what the country is thinking, but to sum it up in beautifully written words. Oh, you're so right about this. And it's interesting, if you look at the young Kennedy, again, 1946, campaign for the House of Representatives, he's not a particularly good speaker. But even then, and I think this is key, even then he has a an interest in words and in language and in how to use words that resonate with voters. You can see it even in 46, when, by the way, he's writing mostly his own speeches. And so on the on paper, some of these speeches are terrific, it seems to me, when I go back and look at them now. But what he does through hard work and practice, and again, Jackie has input on this, is he becomes a better speaker. He's able to deliver these words in a way that I think resonates with voters, needless to say. Even in 1960, he sometimes spoke too fast. He sometimes dropped historical references that were over the heads of of the audience. In other words, he was still sort of figuring things out in 60. But the language, as you point out, is incredible. I mean, look at this inaugural address. 1,300 and some odd words. In other words, this is a short inaugural address and surely one of the three or four best, most memorable inaugural addresses in the nation's history. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Just that line (laughs) caused thousands, tens of thousands of young people in the United States to say, Mom, Dad, I'm off to Washington. I'm going to serve in the Peace Corps, or I'm going to do something else. This is the kind of language that you see in many of his speeches, and they just resonate still today. It's not only the language, but it is the medium of delivery. It's the man himself, the fact that he is young, he's coming of age, he's coming into his own at the inception of rock and roll at the beginning of the these new young method actors in Hollywood. And he seems to be part of that whole new, exciting generation. It seems like this is the first time that a politician has captured the imagination of, of young people and teenagers. Is that right? I think it is. I think he represents something new. 
And you can make, it's a very interesting connection you make between some of the developments in music and in Hollywood and some of the people coming uh, onto the stage, if you will, in popular culture. And here we have a political figure who's doing some of the same things. And by the way, it's not just in the United States. I'm originally from Sweden, and though I was born in the year in which he was killed, and so I don't have any memory of, of, of Kennedy, my parents, who have both passed, would tell me about the effect that John F. Kennedy had on Swedes and, uh, when they would catch a glimpse of one of his press conferences or one of his speeches, how much his death impacted Swedes. Think about this, a small country in Scandinavia, you know, so far removed from the United States, he had that effect on even Swedes. Jackie, you know, my mother, when I look at pictures of my mom from 1963, she was, it was clear that she was trying to look like Jackie with the hair, with the dress. So she had that effect too. The two of them were really powerful as kind of iconic figures, not just in the United States, but overseas. Yeah, they were like the classic power couple, the Hollywood power couple, except this was DC. Completely. You know, she's underestimated. I, I think I referred to this before, but I'm coming to the view that Jackie is very important in his success, in his rise. I think he was aware of that. I think their marriage in the final year, the final months of his life, their marriage got better. They lost a son also soon after birth in August of 63. That, I think, also drew them together. But Jackie's importance here should not be underestimated. Let's talk about when he first steps onto the world stage as a young president. There's a few missteps there. So he meets Khrushchev, and Khrushchev famously decides that, okay, he seems like a great guy, he seems slick, but he's weak. Uh, what was it that made him seem like he wasn't man enough for the job as far as the Soviets were concerned? Yeah, you make a really good point. Uh, I think it's right that he came into the White House and there was an impression, not least in Moscow, but also I think it's fair to say among other world leaders, that this guy is untested, that he hasn't really been through anything. Even, yes, okay, he had the wartime experience. Okay, we'll grant him that, but he doesn't really know what it's all about. And Khrushchev, I think, was determined to, to test that proposition, including at Vienna, as you point out. I think Kennedy was actually quite prepared for the Vienna meeting. It sometimes suggested that, well, he didn't know what he was doing. He was quite prepared for, in substantive terms, what he hoped would be key discussion points, including about the future of Berlin. Nevertheless, Khrushchev bullied him, sort of walked all over him. And I think Kennedy's response, somewhat tentative, reinforced this idea that Khrushchev had that, okay, this guy is weak uh, and I can act accordingly both in Europe and elsewhere. And so, as you point out, you have a series of crises in 1961 in Kennedy's first year. Bay of Pigs, a, f a disastrous, you know, invasion in the spring, just a few weeks really after his inauguration. Then this meeting in Vienna, then the Berlin Wall. There are problems in Laos, in Vietnam. He is being continuously tested internationally in 61. It's a tough year for him. His father has a debilitating stroke late in the year to sort of cap off a kind of annus horribilis for the young president. And then it's a story of him, I think, finding his footing 
and in 62 and in 63, figuring out how things work, learning on the job, and, and overcoming to at least a considerable extent these overseas crises. So the whole world is kind of being reinvented politically, certainly, during Kennedy's presidency. The heat in Vietnam is being turned up. There's the Castro assassination plot. We have in some future episodes of uh, We Didn't Start the Fire, we've got Bay of Pigs we're going to be covering and Berlin. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, you know, the Missile Crisis is... In some ways, I guess you could say the kind of apex, maybe that's not the right word for this, but I'll use it, the apex of Kennedy's presidency. It's, it's October of 1962. Khrushchev has decided upon, a, to say the least, bold gamble, which is to install nuclear missiles in Cuba. This is huge. And this becomes an acute crisis, the, probably the most uh, serious crisis that the world has seen, certainly since the end of uh, the war. Kennedy is now charged with figuring out how to respond to this maneuver by Khrushchev. And what happens is 13 incredibly tense days for the world uh, and for him in figuring this out. I conclude, as have others, that it's really the high point of um, Kennedy's leadership, that he is masterful. And the tapes, by the way, earlier in 62, Kennedy has installed into the Oval Office uh, a taping system. He knows, and often Bobby Kennedy, his brother, the Attorney General, know when meetings are being taped, but, but usually others do not. But the consequence of this for us as historians and as people interested in history, is that we can be flies on the wall because these tapes are now available. We can listen to them. We can hear their deliberations during the missile crisis and on other issues like Vietnam in the months to come um, and on domestic affairs, civil rights, and so forth. We can be there to listen to these. It's just an incredible resource. What you hear on these tapes, it seems to me, is a president who is determined to find a political solution who wants to, at all costs, prevent a nuclear war between the superpowers, who rejects the the strong advice of most members of the so-called XCOM, that's the executive committee, who want a military solution. They want to go in and take the missiles out militarily. He, Kennedy, is often quite literally alone in the room and insisting on finding a political solution. No, we're not going to do this militarily if we can avoid it. And little by little, he brings people around. It's a very fascinating uh, um, set of discussions that take place. He shows a kind of empathy. And empathy really means putting yourselves in the shoes of someone else, seeing things from their perspective. And he says, we've got to look at this from Khrushchev's perspective. We've got to give Khrushchev something he can take back to his people in the Kremlin And I think that's key in the resolution of the crisis. Khrushchev himself also deserves credit for diffusing this thing in the end. It's not all Kennedy, but it's really Kennedy's finest moment in office, no question. I think I'm particularly impressed, Fred, by that idea that he had learned from his earlier dealings with Khrushchev, because you get the sense when he's at Vienna, Kennedy is so used to charming people because he has so much charisma. He's slightly baffled that Khrushchev is immune to his charisma. It's such an astute point. I think he, as you say... He went off to Austria in the spring of 61 
also went to Paris and met de Gaulle, and that went pretty well. And Jackie completely charmed the French, by the way. Didn't Jack Kennedy make some sort of quip oh, yeah. about it? I'm Jack Kennedy. I'm the fellow who accompanied Jackie. And, and by the way, that little quip gives you, I think, insight into why he was so successful as a politician, as a leader, because he often did this in press conferences. He often did this in, in other appearances. When it came to the Q&A, this is when he really shined because he was so good with those kinds of quick remarks, which could be self-effacing. Unlike some, shall we say, recent leaders, it was not all about <laughs> him. He was able to, to poke fun at himself in a way that I think really worked. But I think in Vienna, he thought, as you pointed out, he thought that he could charm Khrushchev or at least talk to him in a way that he would talk to perhaps an American politician and they would have a, a kind of meeting of the minds. They would be able to work something out. And as you point out, he learned quickly that wasn't going to work. Now, what's ironic about this is that after the resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis, so if we think about this in terms of, say, the last year of Kennedy's life, late 62 until Dallas, till that fateful trip to Texas, he and Khrushchev did have a kind of meeting of the minds. So you could argue, I don't think I've ever thought of this before, but that that way of thinking, that that mindset that JFK had in the end was vindicated. Because what we see in 63, because both of them are so scared by what happened in the missile crisis, you see a pretty dramatic reduction in Soviet American tensions. You see a, a, an improvement in the bilateral relationship. Various steps are taken in the course of 63. You could even then speculate, as some have done, that maybe the Cold War was on, on the way to ending when Jack Kennedy met his death. That's how important those developments were. But as you point out, it was, it was a process of learning and figuring things out. It seems that he was very good at reading people. Like he learned from his mistakes in the case of Khrushchev. And then he was able to perhaps opportunistically employ or deploy his empathy to get people on his side and to win people over his famous speech he gave in Berlin, I'm a Berliner, which I'm not even going to try and butcher the German. Maybe you, you can say it in German, Fred. Well, he butchered it himself. Uh, and, oh, okay. And, and, he described himself as a donut. Yeah, I think, I, I think as a kind of, uh, a kind of pastry, actually. Uh, and even, oh. though, even though Swedish is a Germanic language, and therefore I should be able to you know, uh, articulate this beautifully, I think I'll pass. Because I would probably make the same mistake that he made. But the point is, the point you're making, I think, is is really important that he was able before he became president but maybe especially here in these final months and the berlin speech is a remarkable example of this the berlin speech in which he inspires a huge crowd well over a million in west berlin with his language with his empathetic understanding of how human beings collectively will operate. It's a, it's a remarkable speech. And you know what's interesting about that speech? If you compare the written version produced primarily, I think, by Ted Sorensen, his extremely able speechwriter, who we haven't talked about today, but Sorensen is key to this whole story. But if you compare the draft that was written for Kennedy with the one that he delivered in West Berlin, very different. 
In other words, he extemporized, he ad-libbed right there from the stage in complete paragraphs. He had become by this point in his life extremely adept at speaking uh, apart from the notes, away from the notes, and doing so in a way that, that still had complete uh, sentences and complete paragraphs. That's what you see with that Berlin speech. Uh, it's amazing. He's somebody who certainly has learned to listen to the people, to take the temperature, to read the room, and to deliver what was required. And he he could do that in terms of his policies. He established the Peace Corps. And he also, in terms of being somebody who was an advocate of, of hopefulness, of the opposite of cynicism, he just wanted to advance the USA and to kind of instill this this pride and to, to elevate the country. In the course of that, he established this goal of putting a man on the yeah. moon yeah he did and you know the the moonshot the lunar project is a really interesting part of this story uh, needless to say he was actually somewhat skeptical about whether this could work but he signed off and he signed off I think substantially because he saw the Cold War implications of this that that we're in a race with the Russians uh, and this is something we need to do to show our scientific, our engineering supremacy. Therefore, we're going to do this. It becomes a hugely important moment. He doesn't live to see the success of it. Um, but John Kennedy is critical in launching, if you'll allow the expression, launching that uh, lunar project in 61, so soon after he becomes president. And I think it speaks to a point that you made there in, in the setup here, which is that there's an optimism here about what Americans can accomplish and maybe what humanity can accomplish that is so powerful. And I think it seems more powerful to me today than ever before, because maybe I'm in desperate search for somebody to give me that optimism. But he has it. And this is an example of this. Fred, I have loved every single second of our conversation today. Um, but I am conscious that you do have volume two to complete. So perhaps as a little breather between uh, writing, you might be able to join us for our JFK Blown Away episode, which I think is in about 18 episodes time. So plenty of time for you to get um, thousands of words written in the interim. <laughs> Tom and Katie, it's been just great to be with you. I would love to come back. It feels like we just started speaking about five minutes ago, but that's what happens. <laughs> I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. What an absolute charmer uh, of a guest, Katie. Love Fred. I love Fred. I heart Fred. What I really enjoyed was his emphasis on Jackie's importance because... As the daughter of diplomats, my dad was the one getting paid. You know, we were stationed in Berlin in the Cold War and in Moscow, and he was the one who was uh, air attaché in Moscow. But my mom was fully his partner. Like, they had to throw these James Bond-style cocktail parties, <laughs> and she fully had to be there schmoozing alongside him and buttering up the other diplomats and potentially getting some secrets over canapes and tinkling whiskey glasses. <laughs> so, yeah, I think uh, that was a really essential detail that Jackie was his equal and also somebody who facilitated his success. Yeah, and I don't know, if, because we are going to come back to JFK, obviously, yeah. Katie. It seems to me to underscore the tragedy of it. We haven't even begun to explore it. But when you hear what Kennedy was doing and your brain instinctively starts thinking what he may have done had things been different. Yeah, I know. So many counterfactuals there. If you want another podcast to listen to, you have to try The Secret History of Flight 149. It's wonderful, absolutely incredible. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're headed out on a holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. Yeah, it sounds crazy, Katie, doesn't it? But in 1990, this really happened to both the passengers and the crew of BA Flight 149. What happened next has been dubbed the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years. Journalist Stephen Davis has been reporting on this for three decades, and now he's made it into a series. I want to know, why was the plane allowed to land at all, putting so many lives at risk? Why have secrets and lies persisted for so many years? Listen to The Secret History of Flight 149 now, wherever you get your podcasts. And here's a slightly harder task for you. Should you know a potential guest with all the charm of Fred Logaval. Do let us know. Get in touch. Fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Oh, and I am looking forward, Tom, to our topic, courtesy of Billy, for next week, which is... Let's do the twist. Do, 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 do. Come on, Katie. Do, 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 Let's do do the twist. Chubby checker. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.